Welcome to Make No Bones. I'm Toby Altman. And I'm Emily Barton Altman. Make No Bones is a podcast about poets and poetry. Each episode, we ask a poet to read a poem and then talk about it. They tell us how they wrote it and explain how it reflects the broader priorities of their work. This week's episode features Jay Biesemer. I am Jay Biesemer. Hybrid artist and poet Jay Biesemer is the author of many poetic artifacts, including Keylate and Telephone, both from Brooklyn Arts Press, A New Territory Sought from Moria, Aster to Daylily from Damask Press, and Object with Man's Face from Rain Taxi Ohm Editions. He is a contributing editor with the Operating System and founder of the Intermittent Series in Chicago. He'll read an untitled poem from Keylate. The book itself was written mostly during the, oh, I don't know, three or four months prior to and just as I began medical gender transition. Um, so it was just before I started hormone therapy and then as I was just beginning hormone therapy. So naturally, questions of what is masculinity, what, what do I want to embrace about being a man, and what do I want to very deliberately leave behind? These were uh, controlling ideas in a large extent um, for a lot of the poems that I was addressing in, in that book. Many of the poems address conflicts between not just interior experience and other, you know, exterior experience of me, of this body, um, of the changing body, but also the individual body as a part of a social body and how the social body determines to some extent the mm, inhabiting of the individual body. So a lot of that in the book I was really trying to sort of blow up. I was also trying to uh, make fun of some of <laughs> some of my own experiences, some of my own prior, prior ideas but also some of the ways in which I was being, uh, well, misgendered, whatever, you know, all kinds of experiences of just awkwardness and failure and, you know, threat or not threat, humor. There, there was a whole bunch of those kinds of things. And I think that um, one thing that has become incredibly important in Chelate is almost almost the first book in which this has started to come together is that within the last three or four years um, I have emerged into a poetics that has actively involved the body. Chelate as a title, the word itself means it's a chemical, it's a chemical terminology. I chose it, I used it in a poem in the book, um, and the the line in the poem is, chelate myself into a new man, which um, has to do with, you know, the application in that line has to do with uh, using a chemical process to incorporate something toxic into the body in a way that transforms not only the substance, but the body. Um, and there's an implication there that testosterone 
is a toxic substance. Um, and I think in some ways, I mean, quite literally, it is, but it's also uh, not, you know, it's also a life-saving substance for some of us. So, um, but it is a powerful substance nonetheless, and it is a chemically powerful choice to make. I was much more of a conceptual poet. I was very averse before this process. Um, <laughs> this process of poetic and personal trans transitioning, I was much more averse to addressing the body, my body, and I was very much about... I actively tried, actually, to uh, eliminate personal subjectivity from my work. I would... It still freaks me out to use the word I in, in a piece, you know. Um, and I, I, pre, I play with that, actually. I, I tread the line of comfort there, you know, and hop across back and forth between comfort levels with using I. Um, and lately I've been playing with second person, so that's interesting. Um, you and, and third person, which is even more rare for me. Uh... So, and I think that that is directly related to transitioning um, in a way that somehow feeling like my body is mine now um, and that it makes sense to me, the way that it functions makes sense to me now, um, has sort of allowed me to expand or to, to in, in involve a more expansive poetics. Um, the body of my poetics is making sense to me in a way that it didn't. Okay, let me, let me backtrack. It's not so much a level of comfort or a degree of comfort with personal subjectivity. It's the imperative towards personal subjectivity um, as a political act, as a space making for myself and others um it's also a, a payback because you know there may be some far younger than i <laughs> aspiring transgender poet or genderqueer poet who looks at something that i that i have put out there and says this is what i want to be doing and this guy's telling the truth a truth of the moment and maybe that person will track the truths from you know telephone through uh a new territory sought to chelate to beyond and and decide that they can make a truth or two for themselves so um i think that my poetics has changed to involve much more of a social function much more space-making, much more about community, hooking into a community and helping to further a community and, and expand it. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, um, and I, I sort of always wrote and drew. Um, I have... <laughs> I think I still have somewhere 
my mom used to sew me little books out of construction paper, little blank books, and I would write stories in them and draw pictures. And I, uh, I'm pretty sure that I still have a couple of them. Um, and, but I didn't start writing poetry, poetry, like regularly, and dis- and I didn't decide that that was what I, you know, you don't do this because you think it's a good idea. You do this because you think there's no other way. You can't not, you know. So I was about 14 when I discovered that I couldn't not write poetry. Um, and I, uh, at that time, I was going to City Honors High School um, in Buffalo, and there was a little student you know, group called Writer's Circle, and I was part of that. And uh, I went to Antioch College for my undergrad and um, got a self-directed master's degree, not an MFA, but a MFA-like master's degree through um, what is now Antioch University Midwest. I started teaching um, college composition, writing and rhetoric. For and I did that as an adjunct and then as a, a non tenure track full time lecturer for around eight years total. Um, got completely burned out and very ill, and stopped teaching. Um, it wasn't until I stopped teaching that I had the time to, you know. I mean, I'd been writing. I I'm one of those insane, obnoxious people who, you know, is incredibly pr- prolific as a writer. I'm, I'm always writing. And <clears throat> I never had t- any chance to really do much with that until after I stopped teaching. So my career as a poet and the awareness that people have of my work has skyrocketed since I was included in the Troubling the Line anthology. Uh, the full title of Troubling the Line is Troubling the Line, Trans and Genderqueer Poetry and Poetics. And it's edited by the incomparable T.C. Tolbert and Trace Peterson. Um, and I felt incredibly empowered by seeing that there were others like me in terms of people who were trans-identified, experimental poets. This has no title. This poem has no title. It's from my book, uh, Key Late, which is coming out in the summer, this summer of 2016 this year, in uh, from Brooklyn Arts Press. If you look at it when it comes out in the book, you'll see it's like a brick, you know, and there's you know, an unusual type of punctuation. Um, It's made up of fragments, primarily. The way the block prose form and the colon use uh, evolved came about largely because I was writing prose poems that were fragmentary, were reflecting a fragmentary identity, a fragmentary experience of myself, my body, um, and my movement through the world, I guess, uh, a fragmentary sense of place in the world. You know, I wasn't 
nobody knew what to do with me out there on the on the street and so it naturally reverberated back so that I didn't know what to do with myself you know um and again this is harking back to sort of pre-transition early transition stuff but what happened was that as these things were trying to get out onto the page as I was trying to use my poetics to process my experiences I um I realized that any reader just looking at a more traditional prose poem format would carry with that experience some or carry into the encounter some set of expectations that would get in the way of their experience of the poem um and my compromise i guess was to separate it was to um get rid of all of the sort of mechanical cues that would lead people to think oh this is a prose poem and prose poems go like this usually there's maybe or maybe it's a flash fiction or maybe there's some kind of story happening here there's no story happening you know um and that i think is consistent with my poetics even you know the evolution of my poetics that is one of those sort of anchors that you know i i there is some narrative present but it's tweaked um <laughs> very tweaked um another thing that it exemplifies from my poetics is a sort of humor uh satirical humor I mean, when other people do it, I find that an interesting move. And sometimes I, if, if the humor is especially effective, it might make me a little bit more receptive to the critique that's happening. And I would, I would actually have that as a goal for my own work. If it's, if the humor works, I would love it if that helps people think about an issue. I am without wings, without puffballs or signposts or handbooks. I am without track lighting, geopolitics, bus routes. I am without a comforting aura of predictability. I am without inspirational footwear or microphones or hopeful alcohol. I am without small packets of candy, without crisply flapping pennants without imitators, nine-pins, bullets, driftwood. I am without that mosaic of infant lipstick, that generation-defining vocal turn, that thing, whatever it is, that drips butter onto the chin with clockwork regularity. I am without harmful irritants, a nest of needles, pumice, a ringed tail, Forgive these deficits, though they doubtless threaten my manhood. There's much a man can do without. This episode of Make No Bones was produced and edited by Toby and Emily Altman in Chicago, Illinois. The music for this episode is by me, Toby Altman. To find out more about the podcast, check out our website, makenobonespodcast.org, and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. 
please consider writing us a review. And join us next time for an interview with the amazing Nicole Seeley, who will read from her new chapbook, The Animal After Whom Other Animals Are Named, which is just out from Northwestern University Press. And uh, it also won the Drinking Gourd Chapbook Prize, which is pretty amazing. Nicole rules. She does. <laughs>